Hey, it's Jose Galison. You're watching No Way Jose. You can find me on the No Way Jose YouTube channel, all the major audio podcatchers, and Odyssey as well. Uh, credit to my, my boy Justin Campbell at jcamp1521 for the intro. Today my guest is Sal the Agorist. Uh, this, is a, this is a live stream, just so you guys know. Uh, if you're watching the 17th, it will be available publicly only the day of during the stream. Uh, immediately after, I will put it on, uh, you know, private, enlisted, whatever, and it will only be available for my patrons. Uh, if you want to give me money for that, it also goes. It's also available immediately at Odyssey as well. So if you want to go on Odyssey and not give me money, hell yeah, do that. Uh, uh, Patreon.com is no way Jose 2020 is that the lowest levels two bucks that get you access to the basic just that. Uh, there's differing levels. The highest being 20. And my $20 ones get the perk of being a sponsor. They get read during the episode. Uh, so my sponsors are CD McRae of the Whiskey and Tea Podcast, at SpaceCat2K. That's his Twitter handle. Go follow him. He's good stuff. Uh, we did an episode, me and him. Uh, we covered uh, like agorism for secession uh, type thing. And uh, that was a good one because that, that was a $10 uh, level perk. You get to curate an episode. Jacob Winograd of the Daniel 3 Podcast. He covers a lot of biblical anarchy stuff. Liberty Down Under of the Australian Liberty Network, and he also has the Gumtree of Liberty podcast. Uh, I'm actually going to be going on his show next week. It's been a hassle scheduling that because they're over in Australia, so with all the fucking time stuff. So that's that should be good. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I appreciate his, uh, his support. And I got a new one, Brandon Smith. I don't know if he has anything to promote. I just got him. I sent him a message. If you watch this, Brandon, send me a DM or message me back on Patreon. Let me know if there's something you want me to promote for a sponsor. But I have him. Uh, uh, he's... I, I appreciate his support. I'll definitely put out more of his stuff when he gives me more in, uh, information. Uh, today, the topic, well, this is our third part of the live reading series of in, of, uh, of NLM, New Libertarian Manifesto. I do want to remind you guys that I do already have a completed series of Anagoras Primer with, uh, with Caleb Brown of the Faith, Liberty, and Praxis podcast. He's a paleo. Uh, I also want to let you guys know next week... I'll be having Marcel Dumas uh, or Marcel Goutreau. He goes by both kind of. And then Crip Daddy on to discuss the CNN N-word Rogan January 6th article, uh, which I am really looking forward to that. Crip Daddy's a comedian. Uh, Marcel is a genius, uh, and he's also pretty based too. So it, basically we're going big brain time on the N-word and also the historical narratives that surround it. So it should be very fun. I'm very much looking forward to that one. Uh, as much as I enjoyed the Dave Smith episode the other day, you know, another little plug for that. That's actually currently behind a paywall. By the time this goes public, this episode, it will be available for a public consumption. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know why. Something about this topic I just find very, very interesting to be able to actually like go do a deep dive on, you know, the historical narratives that surround it, whether you should or shouldn't, you know, the given context, et cetera. And then also the how much CNN jumped the shark with comparing it to January 6th. And then even then on top of that, it was January 6th even really being that bad. Uh, I just said that, so make sure to follow me on Odyssey. We don't know if this will get pulled. Uh, Tower Gang, we just had Waste Main, uh, you know, or, uh, Garbage Main. I forget he keeps changes at. I don't remember which one he's at now. We had him on. He's just one of the buddies from Tower Gang. He's a, he's a good guy. That was a fun episode. Uh, you know, we don't all, we don't always you know do the clout chasing. We don't always have the big guests. Sometimes we just have our buddies, and those are great too. So make sure to go check that out. We don't have a guest for next week, so if you guys want to throw out suggestions, we're always open to that. Go check out Top Lobster at toplobster.com. Use Jose at Chuggle for 10% off. Uh, all right, let's get into it. Enough of this stuff. Hey, what's up, dude? What's up? How are you? Oh, doing all right, doing all right. Uh, you know, I, I guess, I know we're doing a live reading here, but I mean, it, we'd be remiss if we didn't kind of 
I guess, quickly cover uh, kind of your thoughts on the debate with Dave. Uh, I almost wish we had had a two-parter where we kind of like settled some of the uh, the misconceptions around uh, agorism and then went into it, you know, because while he did seem more knowledgeable than most, it is also there was some stuff that it's like, well, I mean, this is a misconception that we get sometimes. <laughs> so, yeah, I thought it would be it would, it, I, I agree. It probably would be good to have like a follow up kind of thing just to like yeah. clear up some of the like you said, misconceptions, some of the loose ends. But I thought it was was, was good overall. I mean, I didn't go into it expecting to convince him, nor did I think yeah. he was going to convince me. But, um, you know, there's there's more common ground than there is stuff that we disagree on. So, yeah. No, yeah, for sure. Uh, that was actually probably the biggest thing that irritated me is that I feel like it gave agorism this conception of being this like lefty thing. And I don't mean the way that Konkin meant it. I meant it in like a commie, which I, I, I get it. There's some aesthetics of agorism that give it to that. But if you look at its economics, it's actually very much uh, Rothbardian or, you know, like a Misesian or whatever. Well, it's like uh, Sam said, we're more Rothbardian than, than the Rothbardians. We're yeah. more Rothbardian than Rothbard was. Yeah. And I think that's true, you know, because, yeah. again, it's, it's, it's the consistent application of libertarian principles. That's really all we're talking about here. So if you're a consistent Rothbardian, you're going to wind up at agorism eventually one way or another. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that. Otherwise, we can get into it. I mean, it, it was definitely go check it up for yourself if you're watching. It was it was definitely interesting. Uh, it was about an hour and a half long. Uh, it was it, it was. Yeah. A lot, a lot of people gave me shit in the comments for by the way, it's behind a paywall and it's already at almost 900 views even behind the paywall. So like not that I have that many viewers, but I, between the live streams and the people who just still had the link after the fact who were able to watch nice. it or whatever. So uh, it, it definitely has done some numbers. I've gotten some patrons out of that. So I definitely appreciate you and Dave uh, helping out with that. Of course. But, uh, yeah, uh, I had a point I was getting at, but I completely they were, forgot. They, they, were, they were yelling at you in the comments? Oh, yeah, yeah. They were yelling at me in the comments for butting in too much. But it's like, I, I, I don't know. I, I had my reasons. And I also even said beforehand that I didn't – I was trying my best to not make this a debate or d have that debate feel. I was trying to make it more of a conversation. It went into debate a little bit a few times kind of feeling-wise. But uh, and so that was that was kind of my thing. I even said I was going to be kind of a third person. Like, I was kind of like bouncing back and forth between like a moderator slash other third person in the conversation. So I wasn't trying to do a moderator type thing. I think a lot of people had this idea that it was going to be we're doing the debate. And it's like, no, that's not what we're doing here. <laughs> like, so. Well, I, 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 I for one prefer I, I preferred the two versus one aspect of it. So <laughs> I wasn't yeah. complaining. <laughs> yeah, no, that is a. Uh, uh, yeah, that definitely helped. I, I did though. I did was trying to do my best to make it clear that I wasn't. We weren't there to gang up on Dave. Like you, you even saw in there. We have some miscon. Like we have some disagreements, which could just be um, summed up as some as simple as just like maybe we got different interpretations of it, or or even then there might be some parts of what Conkin has said that maybe I don't necessarily hundred percent agree with, or vice versa. So, yeah. hey, I respect everyone's right to be wrong, including yours and Dave's. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all right. I guess let's uh, go ahead and get into it. By the way, we're doing chapter three. I would like to try to keep to getting like at least knocking out a chapter each episode, but this one is pretty long. So that you guys watching, if you want to be clean, uh, unless if it gets over an hour and a half, I'll probably I'll probably stop mid chapter because I don't want to go too long in the tooth with it. I but think we can bang this one out. I, I think we might be able to. That might be, but that'll definitely be all we knock out this one. This is a longer longer one. So, um. All right. Also, by the way, people in the live stream, feel free to give me money. I like that shit. Uh, 
Uh, I will bring it up. But all right, having detailed our past, and oh, by the way, this is chapter three, counter-economics, our means. Of the New Libertarian Manifesto, of course. Yes, of the New Libertarian Manifesto by Samuel Edward Conkin III, <laughs> of his name. Uh, having detailed our past and status present and glimpsed a credible view of a far better society achievable with present understanding and technology, no change in human nature needed. We come to the critical part of the manifesto. How do we get here or from here to there? The answer breaks naturally or maybe unnaturally into two parts. Without a state, a differentiation into micro manipulation of an individual by himself in his, in his environment, including the market, and the macro manipulation of collectives would be at best an interesting statistical exercise with some small reference to marketing agencies. Even so, a person with a highly sophisticated decency may wish to understand the social consequences of his or her acts, even if they harm no other. All right. I think he's kind of leading into kind of a little bit of praxis there and how that works, you know, like even if maybe you're not necessarily harming someone, what are your, what, I mean, this is something that even the, uh, a lot of the Rothbardians will go into that, or especially Hoppians where it's like, yeah, this may not break the nap, but it may not be the ideal thing to do. You know, some, especially questions of culture, stuff like that. There are preferable cultures to be had. That doesn't mean that they deserve to be aggressed upon, but they may not be the ideal culture to get to a libertarian society or maintain one. Um, yes, but the, and I, I agree, but the Hopkins are wrong about that, of course, because <laughs> really it, it's time preference is a function of the, of the money supply. So rather than trying to create these cultural wars in their head, what they should be doing is being focused on alternative currencies like Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash and stuff like that, as opposed to using fiat currency. Then they would just get rid of the moral dilemma altogether. But that's a, that's a story for another podcast episode, I guess. Yeah, you're not necessarily wrong. I can see it both ways because it is like a... If you do straight neck of the economics, it does uh, change yeah. the, the time preference issue, which then makes people's 100%. habits generally be different. But it is kind of a, you know, one or the other. I mean, it's a little bit of both. I, I can see both sides. I, I kind of seem to lean towards you, uh, you know, but. Well, there is there is a lot of um, overlap now because Tho yeah. Bishop is like one of the best damn paleos we've had since Lou Rockwell came about. And if you've noticed, Tho is really pushing the whole crypto thing because he understands exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, no, uh, he's he's been great lately. Uh, I mean, yeah, on the money. I obviously don't agree with all of his takes. Uh, it gets a little some of the things I think are goofy, but of course, all not. in all, he's definitely he is, worth a follow. Yeah, he's he's a, a genius guy though, and I, I always yeah. enjoy listening to him talk, uh, even when I disagree with him. Uh, with a state tainting every act and befouling our minds with unearned guilt, it becomes extremely important to understand the social consequences of our acts. For example, if we fail to pay a tax and get away with it, who is hurt? Us. The state, uh, innocence, libertarian analysis shows us that the state is responsible for any damage to innocence it alleges that the selfish tax evader has incurred, and the services the state provides us are illusory. Yes, All right, I like this, I like where we're going now, um, which I do think this is a main crux of kind of, and this is a point we kind of got into with Dave a little bit, and kind of like, what is agorism? And I guess maybe it is, it's kind of sometimes hard to define in certain ways, because it's almost like a mindset. Uh, you know, in, in some ways, and that's kind of what he's getting at here, the kind of the idea that he's getting into that even a lot of libertarians struggle with his mindset, like just normal libertarians of that, like, well, something's illegal, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Like, it's just a matter of measuring the consequences of it and whether you're willing to accept those possible consequences. It's not a matter of whether it's immoral or moral because it's illegal and therefore you shouldn't do it. Uh, I know a lot of people, even libertarians struggle with that concept. So, 
Right, and I don't know if it's in the beginning of this book or in the primer, but he actually talks about getting into the mindset of like training your mind into like seeing things this way, and so that we understand like a, a you automatically like just grasp the concept that a a voluntary um, exchange that's in the black or gray markets is like is an agorist action. That's something that we should be that we should be striving for. Like he he explains that that should be something that we sort of like. Um, we're trying to train our mind to like just intuit that. And uh, I think that that's sort of what he's, he's sort of knocking down the same door right now. Yeah. But even so, must there not be more than lonely resistance cleverly concealed or dropping out? If a political party or revolutionary army is inappropriate and self-defeating defeating for libertarian goals, what sort of collective action works? The answer is agorism. It is possible. So oh, can I just stop right there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like um, we speak about, and this is something, again, that came up with Dave. It's like the individual versus the collective. And they say how, you know, we're like leftists for um, for this and that reason. When really, and Konkin's pointing out best here, it's like the only sort of collective that we believe in is the market, right? Is the entrepreneur working together with the consumer. That's the only collective we actually believe in. So it really is ironic for, for um, everybody else. Uh, to be calling us um, leftists. And it is sort of like ironic in a way that we have that moniker attached to the philosophy, yeah. you know? Yeah, which like I pointed out before, and I know you disagree, that's kind of my biggest criticism because then it causes these issues. And that's not even necessarily saying there's something inherently wrong with agorism. It's more of a branding thing is the kind of way I look at it. But you True, know, fair. Yeah. It is possible, practical, and even profitable to entrepreneur large collections of humanity away from status society to the agora. This is, in the deepest sense, true revolutionary activity and will be covered in the next chapter. To understand this macro answer, however, we must first outline the micro answer. Everything starts with the individual. So, the function of the pseudoscience of establishment economics, even more than making predictions from the ruling class, as did the imperial Roman augurs, is to mystify and confuse the ruling class as to where their wealth is going and or the ruled class not the ruling class as to where their wealth is going and how it is taken an explanation of how people can keep their wealth and property safe from the state then is counter-establishment economics or counter-economics for short the which you know actually i kind of want to go in that a little bit there i don't know if you've run into this a lot but a lot of people get confused with the concept of counter-economics and they kind of they play linguistic games to kind of like, I don't know, trip us up when it's, and even just point out there, he's getting at counter establishment economics. So it's, it's not because uh, a lot of people point out counter economics and like saying it's like anti-economic or something weird. I've heard weird linguistic arguments. That's just it. sort of, that, that's just yeah. um, like a naivety on their part. Um, yeah. Konkin. And I, again, I don't, I don't recall where, but he explains that like the term comes from like the term counterculture was big when he was writing this. So the idea was like this was sort of counter to the mainstream version of economics. Just and he also had the concept of counter psychology, by the way, which is a whole nother um, rabbit hole to dive into. Which I guess uh, I would kind of go into what we were talking about a little bit earlier with the previous paragraph about like essentially it's not necessarily whether something's illegal or not. It's about you know getting the right mindset. I'm assuming I haven't I don't know much about his counter psychology. Yeah, that's maybe. more like um, Thomas Saz and, and those guys. That's a whole nother issue. But I do want to say. Um, he, the one the one sentence here that's really key is he says it's possible, practical, and even profitable to entrepreneur large collections of humanity away from status society to the agora. This is, in the deepest sense, true revolutionary activity. Um, that, and, I, and not to shamelessly plug myself here, but in chapter, towards the end of the book, 
there's some really great examples of how this happened in like um, communist Romania and like in um, colonial India. In fact, it's really the only thing if we think about this ever actually successfully freed people from the state is, exact, is, is exactly what he's talking about here. Entrepreneuring large collections of humanity away from, this, away from the, the state. That's the only thing that's ever produced liberty, right? Whether yeah. it's been um, doing that with Bitcoin or um, like the examples I use in the book, there's like this um, from like Romania, there was this uh, Western, um, there was a smuggler who would bring in movies from the West and that was sort of like a, a light uh, that shined into Chesco's dystopia that eventually like grew and grew and grew because people were able to see like Western society and Western culture and all the, the goods and services in the all these 80s American movies. And that's what inspired them to revolution. So Conquer really hit, hits the nail on the head in that one sentence. That's really the essence of like allegorism. Yeah. Uh, not to get off on a rabbit trail, but I did want to bring this up. This is kind of the counterpoint to what my what I brought up before. Uh, I actually think you're, you're, you bring up a good point. Uh, Junkie Jeff, he says, Conkin turned my friend from a socialist to an anarcho syndicalist That's a step in the right direction. So sure I would is. say that is the actual, the benefits of the lefty critique that I gave. Uh, but I, I, I guess, and not to sound corn, like a cornball, because I know a lot of people get make up fun of libertarians for the neither left nor right type thing. But I'd, I'd almost... I guess I would prefer he had called it either right libertarian or or alluded to right or just left it out entirely, n not classified it as left or right. Because I guess if he had classified right, we end up with some of the issues that the Hoppians run into sometimes where they get a little bit a little crazy on one side. Uh, you know, not necessarily saying that's a bad thing entirely, but I, I, don't know, I guess I, I kind of prefer that aesthetic in a little bit way. Uh, but yeah, that's well, definitely a good point. Coming from the left or have wrapping it to some extent in leftist aesthetics. Uh, it does have this effect of pulling people from the left. Um, so Jeff is 100% right. Like to move from socialist to syndicalist is a huge, huge jump, which we should be commended and applauded. Yeah. Um, to your point, real quick, the whole concept of like left and right libertarianism as we know it like today, right now, comes from Tom Woods, who who is more conservative than is more right than left, right? And he sort of um, spread this idea that right libertarianism is sort of the, the correct version of libertarianism. And when that's sort of coupled with late Rothbard and Hobbes work, that's where the whole sort of um, disdain for quote unquote left libertarianism comes from. But um, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, these are just labels. Just, yeah. and, and tomorrow in 10 years what left and right mean could be completely different so yes yeah i, I know that's and that was kind of my point that i brought up uh, I, mean, I don't know if i actually brought up a day but i brought it up before that, that that maybe when conkin brought it up it was under a different you know time had a different purpose he was thinking differently because you know and this is why i hate the whole left right thing uh you know you see constantly like like neo-reactionary people i know a lot of people just went after uh james Lindsay recently because he said something, and I mean, maybe maybe he did say something wrong. I didn't really care enough to look into it too much, but he said something about, oh, you need to keep an eye on the right. But then you have people who have their built-in definitions of what left and right are, and then they jump on people who criticize it. And then, but it's like they're using a different definition. So it, left and right is I kind mean, of fucking retarded because it's different to everyone. So I mean, you can tell everybody that Sal Mayweather doesn't trust either the right or the left. 
regardless yeah. of how you're defining it. You know? I mean, it, I guess it depends when you define it. Because sometimes I've seen people who define left as ba- – they basically will define left as, well, that's bad. And then right is, well, this is good things. So and it's like, well, okay, if we're using this definition, sure, yeah. <laughs> like, I, know, okay. I know. And that's the thing. It's like in, in what context are you using the terms left and right? Because yeah. it can be true. It might be true. It might be false. It really depends on the definitions that, that we're using here. Yeah, I mean, who would have thought a binary doesn't really fit well, doesn't really work <laughs> yeah, well I know. in politics and fluctuates over the years. Um, but yeah, no, it's more of a branding thing. And, and you know what? That branding thing could swing back, you know, 10 years from now when the right's being crazy and everyone's like, oh, the left's great, you know, like. Right, so. exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. The actual practice of human actions that evade, avoid and defy the state is counter economic activity. But. In the same sloppy way that economics refers both to the science and what it studies, counter-economics will undoubtedly be used. Since this writing is counter-economic theory itself, what will be referred to as counter-economics is the practice. Mapping and describing all or even a significantly useful part of counter-economics will require at least a full volume itself. Just enough will be sketched here to provide understanding for the rest of the manifesto. I guess I want to take this moment to kind of point out a lot of people will say stuff and I, I think a lot of people misunderstand what agorism kind of is like it's it's essentially advocating entrepreneurialism while trying your best to try to set yourself apart from the state and be even counter to it in a sense uh, like counter economics. But so to lay out how do I do agorism that's kind of like that's like how asking someone how do I live a good life like. I don't what are your values? Like what do you like? I, I don't fucking know. Like you know, <laughs> which maybe that might I mean, not be what's getting at here, but that, that there is a point to that. Um yeah, I mean, this is sort of like um like in a sense, um like it is it is to each person whatever risk you can take on. Like whatever your risk tolerance is, it's gonna it's gonna be different. Uh, it's going to be it's going to differ for each individual depending on do you have kids how old are you what are your financial obligations like everyone's risk tolerance is like a 17 year old who like is out all night he has a really high risk tolerance someone who's like 35 years old they have like a few kids they have to like pay mortgage like they can't afford to take as much risks as that 17 year old can right so i mean yeah. what it means to everybody is sort of just uh, it's sort of different but at the end of the day i think um, and you know, this is what I tried to say to Dave when we were talking about like Uber yeah. and Airbnb is that a definition that I've settled on recently and I'm pretty happy with is that agorism is a disruptive, it's a form of entrepreneurship. It's a unique form of entrepreneurship where you seek not only profit, but also disruption. Whereas in, in anarcho-capitalism, in the that in that model, the, the entrepreneur seeks profit and profit alone. Whereas in the agorist model, we're seeking profit. But we're also trying to disrupt the state. And that's why I sort of count yeah. some of the more disruptive firms like Uber and Airbnb and Lyft as sort of not agorist, but agorist friendly or, or sort of bordering on agorism. You know, if yeah. you can decartalize the taxi industry, uh, I'm, I'm pretty happy with with you. Yeah, which uh, that, uh, that's a common thing, which I, I, I don't know if it's necessarily a David understand or maybe you kind of was falling to that trap of, of uh, the idea of some people have. Uh, of agorism and they'll say stuff like well not everyone go in the black market it's like okay i get that but everyone can go in the gray market to some extent right. maybe and that may, maybe be the slightest tinge of gray you know like maybe not very and that's what conkin <laughs> said to uh yeah. rothbard right when rothbard made his apply conkin was like hey look anybody like you're thinking of like some guy who's like a mechanic he's working nine to five he's busting his hump he can come home at five o'clock 
and work on cards underneath the table, right? He could do yeah. something like, like you said, engage in the gray market in some way. There's always a way that we can we can participate in in the counter economy. Yeah, and then I did want to add, I, I, you kind of brought up the, you know, uh, in, in caps, like it's just like profit for profit alone. I would actually make the case, Agris, you could even look at it from the perspective of profit from profit alone as well, because the idea, I actually think you set yourself up in a better position by separating yourself from the state. And that couldn't be any more clear in this modern day, you know, what's going on between like the lockdowns, shit, even the Canada stuff. It's like if you put yourself in a position where you are, set apart from the state in a way to where they're less able to interfere with your life. Obviously it's a benefit. Like maybe it might not be purely monetary. Maybe it's just peace of mind uh, or maybe it's just job stability or whatever. It's, it's being, if you are able to, the, the more you're able to get yourself into the, the, the Agora without overdoing your risk, essentially, the better you will be, you know, essentially yeah. kind of the way I look at it. Well, so, that's the whole, that, that, yeah. that's the whole key. And, you know, that's what sort of separates us from the sovereign citizens. Not to go down a rabbit hole. If you want to cut me off, just tell no, me. No, we can keep up. going. Like, I mean, if we gotta, if we gotta, if we're hitting good points, we'll do it. We can stop mid-chapter. It's fine. Keep going. But, like, <laughs> the only thing, like, if you think about it, the only two factions of the libertarian community, right? We have all these different views, the constitutionalists, the minarchists, the ANCAPs, the chorists. The only two factions of that umbrella community that believe in defiance as a solution are the agorists and are the sovereign citizens. We differ in the sense that the sovereign citizens are openly in your face defiant. And that's why there is a plethora of YouTube videos of them being shot and killed on the side of the road by state troopers. Whereas Agorists, we believe in operational security. We believe in concealing our actions. And most of the time that involves using the tools provided to us by crypto anarchists like Monero or cryptocurrency or Tor or hardware wallets or something like that. Um, VPN, so on and so forth. So it's like, you know, it, people say to me like all the time, well, you agorists are going to only wind up in jail. That's no way. You don't want the libertarians to wind up in jail. It's like, no, no, no. We don't think, nobody wants to go to jail. It's, we're not advocating for that. We're not telling people to go get locked up or anything like that. We, we believe in, in being free, but in sort of like, like my buddy Spirko says, be the gray man, blend into the background, like, be, like go into the shadows. Don't let them see you. Don't let them see how you're operating. Or that, even, that's, that's the key. Yeah. And maybe not even necessarily a gray man. It's it's you can even be out in the open as long as you understand the consequences and have set yourself up. Like if you're fully aware of how the law works in this given thing, and you're likely to receive this fine if the if the government doesn't just you know decide to have a fucking make an example of you like a Ross Ulbricht or something. But right. for the most part, you have a general understanding. Hey, this given action will likely result in this given consequence if I get caught, and there's this pr probably roughly percent chance of me getting caught. And you know, do I move forward? Do I not? I mean, obviously, I guess that's kind of a little bit of a gray market, like a gray man type thing. But I mean, you can kind of be open about it too, depending on what your given thing is. Because I mean, you could be a CEO of a major company and still be engaging in the gray market by oh, yeah. finding ways to manipulate the tax code or even flagrantly disregarding the tax code, but realizing like, you know, like who was it? I don't know if it was you who brought it up. There's some major, uh, God, who's like the big money guy? Buffett? Uh, not Jimmy Buffett. That's the singer. Right? Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett. Uh, I don't remember who I heard it somewhere, but someone's saying that for years he didn't pay taxes because he knew he could make 
more uh, money off of the like he knew the consequence of not paying the taxes but he knew that he would make more money off of that money he would give them than he could get fined right. so he just wouldn't pay the taxes so. genius <laughs> i love it I mean, how do you not respect that you know what i mean like, like i can earn go. more money with this money than i'm gonna owe you so <laughs> Really? I think eventually someone was telling me eventually they kind of were like kind of cracked down like listen here fucker but at that point he already made so much money and came out the window and I was like okay all right you got me <laughs> like <Brilliant. so. laughs> um all right going from an agri society to a status one should be uphill work equivalent to a path of high negative entropy in physics after all, once one is living in and understanding a well-run free society, why would one wish to return to systematic coercion, plunder, and anxiety? Spreading ignorance and irrationality among the knowledgeable and rational is difficult. Mystifying that which is already clearly understood is nearly impossible. The agorist society should be fairly stable relative to decadence, though highly open to improvement. Uh, I don't know if you need to add that. Um, let me know if you do. Let us run backward. Go ahead. Yes. No, no, go ahead. All right, let us run backward in time, like running a film in reverse from the Agri Society to the present state of society. What will we expect to see? Oh, he did this in the Agris Primer as well, which I covered with Caleb. We'll see if he kind of characterizes it the same way or if it got changed. Uh, keep in mind for those listening, this book came out before an Agris Primer. So, uh, you know, if you're trying to compare the two, if you watch both, uh, how he runs this down, do you, if there's any differences, this is the one that came first. So you can see if maybe he changed his mind a little bit and how he presented it. I think we had talked about this earlier and how he presented it kind of like almost you'd be foolish to fall into it, which is like, well, this has kind of happened before sort of <laughs> like, so, um, but anyways, um, pockets of statism, mostly contiguous in territory since the state requires regional monopolies would first appear. The remaining victims are becoming more and more aware of the wonderful free world around them and evaporating from these pockets. Large syndicates of market protection agencies are containing the state by defending those who have signed up for protection insurance. Most important, those outside the status pockets or sub-societies are enjoying an agri-society save for a higher cost of insurance premiums and some care as to where they travel. The agris could coexist with status at this point, maintaining an isolationist foreign policy since the cost of invasion and liberation of status sub-societies would be higher than immediate returns. Unless the state so, launches an all-at-last aggression. Go ahead. So, so just, just to hop in real quick. Um, he says, <clears throat> those outside the status pockets or sub-societies are enjoying an agorist society, save for higher cost of insurance premiums and some care as to where they travel. That sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? I mean, right now, uh, you can get Obamacare and you can get a shitty health insurance plan. Or you can pay a little bit more and get a real health insurance plan. Um, if you want to deal with the state's lack of or poor provision of security and policing services, you have to get your own own insurance. So right now, you're probably paying higher insurance premiums than you otherwise would. Um, and some cares where they travel. And you can't travel, right? You can't travel out of the country because you need to get shot up by Pfizer if you do. So, again, he's writing this in you know the 80s. This is pretty prescient stuff here, guys. Yeah. No, definitely. There is, however, no real reason to imagine that the remaining victims will choose to remain oppressed when the libertarian alternative is so visible and accessible. The state's areas are like a supersaturated solution ready to precipitate anarchy. Um, run backward another step when we find the situation reversed. We find larger sectors of society under statism and smaller ones living as ag ag agorically. All right, that's a weird. I've never, I would say agoristically, but all right. 
agorically. All right, I don't know why I don't like that word. It throws me off. All right. However, there is one visible difference. The agorists need not be territorial, con territorially contiguous. They can live anywhere, though they will tend to associate with their fellow agorists not only for social reinforcement, for ease and profitability of trade. Uh, to go off on a tangent, but this kind of reminds me on uh, or makes me think of the the push these days uh, a lot of people make, and I do as well. I say, I mean, if you're able to, you know, I mean, obviously it depends on your situation, just like anything. I'm not saying no matter the cost, do this. But I think people should, at this current state in time, probably move to red states, probably move to rural areas. And, I mean, ideally, you know, New Hampshire or Florida or, like, North, was it South Dakota or North Dakota? Uh, but South one of Dakota. those places. Obviously, it depends on your values, what you're trying to do. If, I mean, if you... You know, it completely, you know, ranges. I know you pro you, you were in New Jersey and you were kind of living up a, in some ways. Like the more the state cracks down in, in some regards, the more uh, opportunities there are for counter-economically minded people. But, you know, there comes a certain point where you're like, all right, I need to move. And that, that kind of reminds me of that a little bit. You know, if you can, you may want to consider it. It may be beneficial. I'm not saying we should do the New Hampshire thing. That never really came up in a discussion with Dave. Uh, that was one thing I was going to bring up if we had time because uh, my thoughts on the New Hampshire thing is I actually don't think we should all centralize in one location. No. And that's kind of the idea. But I do like the idea of, of con concentrating within certain rough ideas, like say it would be rural areas, certain states, it, but it, it, becomes, it becomes a little bit more of a cohesive network, you know. So, I mean, I, I, I um, agree to an extent. Konkin has a great article called Anarcho-Zionism, which we republished at newlibertarian.io. If anyone wants to read it, they can just check it out there. It's, it's obviously available for free. But I think um, that's a whole other story. But you're right, though. We shouldn't concentrate for the same reasons that you just said. You don't want to sort of put all your eggs in one basket for the state to just come and attack. Yeah. Also, we've seen what happens when we secede, right? We've, we've tried that before. And last time the federal government genocided 700,000 of us under the first American Caesar, Abraham Lincoln. But um, I actually disagree um, with your interpretation of what he's saying here. Um, I don't think he's calling for us to sort of unite geographically. I think he's saying the opposite. I think he's saying that we can sort of, we can have pockets of agorists in California and New York, in Florida and South Dakota and Texas and all over in whether in places that are tyrannical or free, it's sort of irrelevant because we agorists have chosen a life of defiance. We are already free. Um, and uh, again, he says here that it's likely that we'll cooperate for social reinforcement and ease and profitability of trade. How many agorists do I... I mean, I don't know about you, but I work with the Gores from all around the world. Um, Lily Forrester is in Mexico. Her and I work together every day on Agora Threads designs, and she did the design for the book. She wrote the foreword. I work with Derek Bros, who's in Mexico, John Bush, who's in Texas. I mean, we Agorists are working. Uh, James Corbett is in Japan. I mean, we're, we are literally sort of, as he's saying here, con concentrating pockets all around the world. Um, in places with varying degrees of statism and, and oppression, and we're we're everywhere. Yeah, and I'm kind of soon. Those I actually think grow and grow. And grow. No, yeah, no, I actually all. think we're kind of saying the same thing because that's what I'm saying. I do think like if you're in a position where you can move to an area 
more conducive to like agoristic type tendencies. Oh yeah, you have a responsibility. But it, that's what I'm saying. It's it's so like if you're in a city, you know, maybe find a, an area that with people oh, yeah. more more like you if you're able to move to a rural area where you can and you can find a larger group <laughs> if you're able to move to a better state where there's even bigger group that's kind of getting i'm not saying it entirely but you know kind of sort of group up obviously naturally there are going to be areas that have larger concentrations but i don't think you should have or be striving for one place for all the concentration it also know? depends on uh what you're doing i remember before i left home there was um a, a cop in brooklyn and I guess the way it works up in New York, it's like impossible to get a gun. And so like the, what, what they do, if you want, if you apply for a carry permit, it goes to <coughs> some like NYPD detective's desk and his job is just to throw a rubber stamp on it and deny you. Well, this guy was taking bribes under the table um, from the Jewish community, from the Hasidics in, in Brooklyn. And he was making a fortune uh, writing out these fake gun permits to people, but he was making the world a better place by doing it. So for example, in that guy's case, it's better for us to have him in Brooklyn, in the center of statism, than it is to have him in Texas or Florida, right? We want him doing what he's doing over there. We don't need him here right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it, it also depends on what you're doing and, and what you're getting away with and, and how much you can get away with. No, I agree. I mean, but I, I do think at some point for that guy, there may be a point where it becomes too much of a crackdown where he chooses to move elsewhere. Oh, yeah. He's, but, he went to yeah. jail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not what I was getting at him going to jail, but you know what I mean? <laughs> all right. It's always safer and more profitable to deal with more trustworthy customers and suppliers. Uh, the tendency is for greater association and more among more agorist individuals and for disassociation with more status elements. So he's kind of saying again what we kind of just said. So I'm kind of getting that too. I mean, it depends on what you're doing. Like with him, if his thing is giving out fake gun permits, he's going to want to be in a place that right. has is actually has people have a demand for that. But now if you're someone who wants to, you know, uh, I don't know, you know, raise cows and slaughter them and sell them to people with just cash and not have Can't to do like, that in New York. Taxes, yeah, you, you'd be better off. You're going to find a larger concentration of people in a more rural area, you know. So and so that's kind of how the lines are drawn right now. To some extent, it'll probably shift as time goes on. Those bubbles will grow. Um, all right. This tendency is not only theoretically strong. It already exists in embryonic practice today. Some easily defendable territories, perhaps in space or islands in the ocean or under the sun or big city ghettos, may be almost entirely agorist. The state is impotent to crush them. Most agorists, though, will live within status-claimed areas. There will be a spectrum of the degree of agorism in most individual individuals as there is today, with a few benefiting from the state being highly status, a few fully conscious of the agorist alternative and competent at living free to the hilt, and the rest in the middle with varying degrees of confusion. And that's very important that we were getting at this earlier. And that was just something that kind of came up in the day of discussion as well, where uh, it's agorism is not a binary it's it's a spectrum uh not to sound like a you know once again to a, a foofy leftist you know like you know gender is a spectrum or some shit but when it comes to agorism it really is and, and it, no matter where as long as you're attempting to get further along that spectrum or or you know and we're not saying you have to jump to one or the other or you're less of an agorist if you aren't completely in the black or whatever like, but the idea is to kind of try to, you know, to some extent. Yeah. That's, that's as deal. long as you're aware that you're on the spectrum and you're trying yeah. to move in the right direction, that's all that counts. I think most of us are aware we're on the spectrums. So. <laughs> yeah, especially <laughs> the libertarians. All right. Finally, we step back to where there exists only a handful who understand agorism. 
the vast majority perceiving illusory gains from the existence of the state or unable to perceive an, an alternative and the status themselves, the government apparatus and the class defined by receiving a net gain from the state's intervention in the market. This is a description of our present society. We are home. All right, yeah. Um, boo, 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 we're just only a handful. Yeah, um, we're just perceiving illusory gains. Yeah, I was trying to think about anything to say on that. Yeah, just kind of describing the current situation. Um, all right, before we reverse course and describe the path from statism to agorism, let's look around at our present society with our newly acquired agorist perception. Much as a traveler who returns homes and see, sees things in a new light from what he or she has learned from foreign lands and ways of life, we may gain new insights on our present circumstances. Besides a few enlightened new libertarians, uh, which, by the way, that was one of his terms he kind of coined to describe agorisms uh, or agorists in general as new libertarians. Um, you know, not all of his terms caught up, caught on as much as others. Um, tolerated in the more liberal status areas of the globe. Toleration exists to the degree of libertarian contamination of statism. We now perceive something else. Large numbers on people who are acting in an agorist manner with little understanding of any theory, but who are induced by material gain to evade, avoid, or defy the state. Surely they have potential. And here it is. We're going to do a good spot. That's a that's a good point. And this is something uh, we've brought up before. And I, I do think, you know, there's one thing Dave brought up that we're conflating things. And, and maybe, the, there, maybe there's some, like, linguistic thing that we could figure out to describe it more apt. Because there are people who aren't necessarily agorists but are, engaging in agorism and don't even realize it so when i was um in high school and i'm just trying to do the math make sure the statute of limitations have expired here but i was doing all kinds of bad shit and i had no concept of rothbard or mises or Konkin. i didn't know who these people were i was sort of libertarian ish just you know in my own way like you know doing live and let live that kind of way but i wasn't i was sort of disinterested in a lot of this stuff but at the same time I was selling weed. Um, I was doing a whole bunch of stuff that was in accord with non-aggression principle, but it was also engaging in an entrepreneurial fashion with the gray and black markets because I was just a criminal at this point in my life. I wasn't like a philosopher or an agorist. I was just a criminal, but I didn't know it at the time, but I was engaging in agorism. And it only became later on that I found Ron Paul and Conk and I realized what I was doing. Um, and that was some of the most effective counter-economics I've done to this day. Yeah, no, uh, it's definitely a good point. There's like two, I guess three types. You have your agorists who are fully aware of agorism, what they're doing. You have people who engage in agorism or counter-economics or whatever, and but they don't realize it. And then you have people who are aware of the theory but don't engage. Uh, so, right. You know, and those are... The, well, and that, that's the, By the way, the latter of which is the worst of all because those yeah. are the folks that understand what we're doing, the importance of what we're doing, and they still refuse to participate. So they, they know the evil, but they refuse to do anything about it. And that's that's what's so sad. Yeah, and it's sad because it is kind of almost like there's still – I'm sure this has something to do with our, what, 12, 13 years of, you know, yeah. uh, public indoctrination no where you're, you know, don't break laws, whatever. So something is still, still caging them to not do it because it's almost like there's no reason to because once you realize it's not immoral – and really, it's just right. a matter of not getting caught, or, or if you do get caught, you're willing to accept the consequences. You know, you're in a situation to do so. It's kind of like, why not? Like, you know, like do what you can around the edges type deal. Absolutely. Um, all right. In the Soviet Union, a bastion of arc statism and a nearly totally collapsed official economy, 
A giant black market provides the Russian, Armenian, Ukrainian, and others with everything from food to television repair to official papers and favors from the ruling class. As the Man- Manchester Guardian Weekly reports, Burma is almost is almost a total black market with a government reduced to an army, police, and a few strutting politicians. In varying um, degrees, this is true me, of nearly all the second and third worlds. I was just going to finish the paragraph. Go ahead. Yeah, let me just hop in there. So, um, uh, number one, in, I don't know if you guys have read uh, Counter Economics from the Back Alleys to the Stars. That's sort of Konkin's piece on the Soviet Union. It's sort of like his proof for, for the Gorsh theory. Um, so, and he's, I think he's, he's sort of drawing a little bit from that here. You can tell by like the wording that he's used. It's sort of the same that he uses in that book. Um, but also, he says, Burma is almost a total black market with the government reduced to an army, police, and a few strutting politicians. Nothing has changed. These people are yeah. still only an army with police and a few strutting politicians. And it's still just a black market. By the way, 3dprintergoburr.com is shipping now to Burma. It's one of the two conflict zones that we actually ship to. You can pay in local currency if you live in Myanmar. Um, and we will get you a 3D printer uh through the hands of the junta we'll get around the junta and we'll get you that 3d printer and of course you can see the fgc nines pictures of the the fgc nines coming in from uh the burman the burmese tyrants so it's working it still as conkin said it's still a black market yeah all right someone brought this up and it's kind of silly but i wanted to make a point of it he said i use stimulus checks to make my meat is this agorism i guess sure technically but i point i want to get at is because this is one thing that came up during the whole stimulus check things uh, you know, I guess he said he sold the leftovers for Moneros in the, in the next chat. But so, yeah, I guess it is technically entirely agorism because you are, you know, taking that money. Uh, one thing that came up a lot when we were getting those stimulus checks, a lot of people, especially libertarian types, were like being like, well, I won't even accept this money or blah, blah, blah. And I, I feel like me, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'd say the agorist thinking on that is like, yeah, give me my fucking money. Like, you're going to do it either way. <laughs> like, I, I'm going to take this money and set it in and try to interact with it in a way that will set myself better, uh, to, you know, in more counter-economically. Dude, the way that I look at this is very simple. Every dollar that you deprive the state of is a dollar that they can't use to murder some child on the other side of the world who you've never met before. Right. If you want them to murder children, five and seven year old girls in Yemen, then give them every dollar you can. But if you don't want to pay for that shit, then deprive them of every cent that you possibly can. Like if you can, no matter what you could do, don't do anything illegal. I can't tell you to do that. But everything else, do whatever you can to take money out of these bastards hands. Um, and, and of course, that's just one aspect of it. Um but, uh, you know, I had this conversation with Walter Block. He wrote a, a little bit about this in his book, um, Space Capitalism. I interviewed him on my, on, the sh- on my podcast, The Agora, about the book. And uh, what he says is, um, you know. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Him and Perb Island and Bob Murphy and Murray Rothbard and Hans Hoppe, these guys worked at state universities and they collected a, a paycheck from the state. Does that make them? not libertarian of course not who in the right mind would call murray rothbard and walter block not libertarian you have to be a nut to say something like this so there's it it's, can't be said just a quick re reductio it can't be said that collecting money from the state makes you unlibertarian right if that's the case then murray rothbard the father of libertarianism isn't, isn't the libertarian so yep. and th that's just sort of blown out of the water as far as i'm concerned i would say though the ideal is to get to a point where you uh, aren't getting, I guess not necessarily aren't, but don't need it. You kind of deal, I guess. Like I would say never rely of course. on it. Yeah. Of course, of course. But look, if you're in a position to take money from them, take every penny that you can take from these people. Take it all. Drain them until they have nothing left because all that money is going to be used against you, your friends, your family, people you've never met before, and it's going to be your responsibility especially if you've paid voluntarily, right? Every dollar that we give them, every dollar that we use that's inflated away by this by the bankers, that's that's used to our detriment. And, and we are, I believe, morally responsible for a lot of that stuff. Yeah, and a lot of people say, oh, they'll just print more. And that's true. But it's still like, okay, you're still robbing them of their economic value because especially if you're doing it in a way to take value away from it and put it in places where their actual value, whether that be crypto, gold, actual physical oh, things, yeah. uh, things that generate generate value for you. Like for me with my, um, like the cat breeding, like if I invest it in buying another, another female, that's something that's going to create, continue to make more value right. for me as opposed to for the state. So, you know, whatever you can. It's, it's, it's so with these side hustles, it's one thing to like have the side hustle and like exist in the gray market and sort of minimize your tax burden. I'll say, right. That's one aspect of agorism. But then when you start accepting alternative currencies, crypto, precious metals, barter, then you sort of have a um, like a multiplier effect on the on the disruption that you're creating, right? Because now it's not just a matter of you're not or you're minimizing your taxes. It's also that you're you're screwing up the, the Fed and the demand for the dollar on top of it. So you're you're really sort of uh, piling piling one disruption on top of another. All right. What of the first world? In the social democrat countries, the black market is smaller because the white market of legally accepted market transactions is larger. But the former is still quite prominent. Italy, for example, has a problem of a large part of its civil service, which works officially from 7 a.m. to 2 p.m., working unofficially at various jobs the rest of the day to earn black money. The Netherlands has a large black market in housing because of the high regulation of this industry. Denmark has a tax evasion movement so large that those in it seduced to politics have formed the second largest party. And these are only the grossest examples that the press has been able or willing to cover. Currency controls are evaded rampantly. In France, for example, everyone is assumed to have a large gold stash and trips to Switzerland for more than touring and skiing are commonplace. Mm -hmm. 
to appreciate fully the extent of this counter-economic activity, one must view the relatively free capitalist economies. Let us look at the black and gray markets in North America and remember that this is the case of lowest activity in the world today. According to American inter uh, in uh, Internal Revenue Service, at least 20 million people belong to the underground economy of tax evaders using cash or barter exchange to avoid detections of transactions. Millions keep money in gold or in foreign accounts to avoid the hidden taxation of inflation. Millions of illegal aliens are employed, according to the Immigration and Naturalization Service. Millions more deal or consume marijuana, cocaine, and other prescribed drugs, including Latril, tryptophan, anti-AIDS drugs, and other forbidden medical material. The anti-AIDS one's a good good example because uh, they had the Dallas Buyers Club, and you know everyone has seen that. Oh yeah, that ties. That's one of my favorite chorus movies. Yeah, um, and yeah, you're 100 right. Everything he said. Look how prescient it all is. Uh. uh Drugs that are forbidden by by medical uh, forbidden other forbidden forbidden medical material ivermectin right does that sound familiar um, illegal aliens that's still an issue today and Konkin by the way himself was an illegal immigrant this is what a lot of libertarians who argue um, against immigration don't understand Konkin was an illegal immigrant who was deported snuck back into the country was deported again and came back again for a, a second time. Um, and of course, millions keep money in gold or, or foreign accounts to avoid the hidden taxation of, inflate, of inflation. I've got precious metals here. I've got, I'm all in on crypto and, and precious metals. So uh, for these exact reasons, by the way, of course, I'm not a tax evader. I would never do anything like that. Um, but I think <laughs> I would also argue that the underground economy is probably much larger than 20 million people today. Yeah. Uh, I want to bring this up. Uh, this is a great example. Barbers. I barter for haircuts all the time. We'll trade out electric work for haircuts. I mean, most oh, yeah. uh, I, uh, most people who get their haircut, or especially dudes, are aware most of the time they take – a lot of places don't even accept a card. They will just take cash and that's it. And, like, do you really think they're reporting all that? Like, this is a great example of kind of what uh, – he was kind of getting at you know that even in, even in the, some of the capitalist societies where it's like okay this is on the up and up because this is a perfect example of a gray market activity because they're completely on the up and up people go to them tons of people of differing views of whether taxes whatever go to them they give them money uh i'm sure most of them they thought about deeply would realize oh they're probably not claiming all this and it's no issue they move on with their day and so on and so forth yeah. Yeah, and you know, not to pick on Dave because he's not here, but I mean, also Rothbard made this argument as well. So I guess I could just say Rothbard, but um, this is just proof of the proof that anybody can engage in in enforcement counter economics, right? So like, even if you have like a regular nine to five, like you're you're a barber or something like that, even still, it's it's you're you're able to engage somehow, some way in in the counter economy, and that, there's that's the proof in the pudding right there. Yeah, and like even though I know like I have my business and I mostly try to engage in cash, but like we brought bartering. I've bartered before for my stuff. Like uh, we've gotten tattoos for cats before, me and my wife. Like, yeah, I mean that's value to us. Like we, I mean anyone who's like understands economics knows that value isn't necessarily just the paper, money, or gold or whatever. It's what you ascribe to it. Subjective. So. Yeah, when I was at the Bitcoin conference um, in Miami, uh, someone came up to me and was like, hey, Sal, can I um, buy a copy of your book, Anti-Politics? And I was like, yeah, sure. And they bro broke out a silver coin and were like, would you take this? And I said, absolutely. Took the silver coin, gave them a copy of the book. No no fiat currency, no Federal Reserve notes required. Yeah. 
Someone, of course, I, I, I pay keep, taxes on that. I don't want to keep going on. Someone brought digitalization of money is a big problem. I do want to address that real quick. Uh, with any new technology, there's going to be you know ways in which the state can get their dirty dick in there, and then uh, you know ways that it can be used for freedom and that's a good example i'm sure now I, I i don't know a lot about crypto i know you do i don't want to get on a big tangent but there are obviously going to be crypto type stuff that are going to be more amenable to the state and then others that are less so you know especially this give send go shit going on in canada that's a big example you know they're talking about like freezing wallets and shit so i'm not too familiar with give send go um you know, I, I think that um, these CBDC, central bank digital currencies, or the whole point is to they can sort of inject money into the economy and then control how you spend it so that you can't use it for Bitcoin purchases or gold or silver purchases or cryptocurrency purchases. They want you out there and spending it to consume. They want you to spend it at Target and Walmart to go out to eat with your family, to go to the movies. They want you out there spending so you can sort of keep this Ponzi scheme alive. They don't want you to just you know, stick underneath the mattress. And that, that's what the CBDCs are all about. Um, but uh, like you said, I, I agree with what you said 100%. Any new technology, the, the state has a history of, we know that the state is going to use it against us, but we're also going to use it against them. And history shows that we usually win that battle. Yeah, no, I mean, we have, um, when it comes to entrepreneurship, you know, a decentralized, I mean, it's the whole idea of the free market, just uh, all these different people doing different things that benefit them to their own personal, I mean, Who the state. Who has used um, blockchain technology more effectively, the state or agorist? Who's yeah. used additive manufacturing more effectively, state or agorist? Who's used cryptography, encryption, um, so on and so forth, right? Like we, they can, they're, they're just figuring out now how to deal with Bitcoin, like BTC, the original, the Model T. We are moving on to like tokenized real estate and like tokenized cars and shit like that. They can't keep up with us. And, yeah, and they're just playing catch up. Yeah, and, it, and they're not anywhere close. Yeah, and it's one of those things that as they're playing catch up, you know, it's a production predation thing. The production, like production pretty much always outpaces predation and as time goes on it seems to be we keep getting a even further and further lead and it's yeah. about and it's, i guess we kind of have that politics for ag or something it's kind of like instead of you know putting your time and energy into something that may have a marginal difference or a negative difference or make no difference at all it'd be better to take that time and effort and put it into something that helps accelerate our uh, ability for production to, to outpace their predation even more and more and more. So, yeah. And that's, that's the hard part. That's the challenge for growth entrepreneurs is that we have to earn enough that we can subsist after they've already leached away a little bit from us. And we have to do it in a way that makes that, that, you know, that we can retain some degree of independence. And that's not always the easiest thing to do. Yeah. All right, and there are all the practitioners of victimless crimes. Besides drug use, there's prostitution, pornography, bootlegging, false identification papers, gambling, and prescribed sexual conduct between consenting adults. Regardless of reform movements to gain political acceptance of these acts, the population has chosen to act now and by doing so are creating a counter-economy. It doesn't stop here, though. Since the 55-mile-per-hour speed limit was enacted federally in the U.S., most Americans have become counter-economic drivers. The trucking industry has developed CB communications to evade state enforcement of regulations. For independents who can make four runs at 75 miles per hour rather than three months at, runs at 55 miles per hour, counter-economic driving is a question of survival. 
The ancient custom of smuggling thrives today from bootleg bootloads of marijuana and foreign appliances with high tariffs and truckloads of people from less developed countries to the tourists stashing a little extra in their luggage and not reporting it to customs agents. Nearly. Go ahead. So one of the things that um, some people would do back up north in, in New York, New Jersey, is they would take they would rent out a rider truck. They would drive down to Virginia, North Carolina, and they would fill it up with cigarettes. Drive back to um, New York, where the price of cigarettes was like fourteen dollars a pack, and sell them um, at wholesale prices to uh, you know bodega owners and stuff like that. So every now and then you'd walk into some Indian shop. I don't smoke anymore, but I used to. And you'd buy like I'd buy a pack of marbles and flip it over, and it would be like North Carolina or Virginia or something like that, because they were smuggling them in to avoid these high um, taxes from from Emperor Cuomo. Yeah. No, I remember when I used to live in Tennessee, like I, uh, shit, I was like, I, I mean, I was in the country, a really rural area. So I was dipping in, in fucking high school and, uh, you know, half the time they didn't care and would sell it to us. Obviously that may not be ideal, but point of getting as I would literally get pocket change, like, or just like change. I could scrounge out of my car to get a can of dip and be like two bucks or less. Whereas like, I don't dip anymore, but if I were to now, like even in Florida, it's like, I don't know, probably like six bucks plus a can. And, you know, I, I mean, I guess that's obviously going to be attributed to inflation and stuff. But, you know, this stuff happens where it's like, you know, the state, you know, puts these. Shit oh, yeah. One of the on easiest, it, one of the easiest, simplest forms of counter-economics is to drive across this, a state line, buy something that has a lower tax rate, bring it back to a place where it has a higher tax rate and sell it at a discounted price. It's one of the easiest ways um, to engage the counter-economy. Yeah, someone just said in Ireland they increased the price of alcohol again, and people are just going up to Northern Ireland for to be, buy it for nearly yeah. half the price. I mean, a good example of this oh, is, like, uh, is like is uh, like a lot of places. Uh, I know in Tennessee there were certain counties that would have weird uh, alcohol laws, but like certain days or after certain times, and you would just go to the next county. Like it, it's it's just this annoying thing you have to and work. They, and they they only shoot themselves in the foot, and counter-economic activity shows them that they're just shooting themselves in the foot. Yeah. All right. Nearly everyone engages in some sort of misrepresentation or misdirection on their tax forms, off the books payments for services, unreported trade with relatives, and illegal sexual positions with their mates. So, um, if anybody has ever seen Carrie Packer, um, go on YouTube and check out the Carrie Packer testimony in front of the Australian Parliament. It's one of the most legendary testimonies you'll ever see. And one of the things that, that they say, they have this sort of really great back and forth that libertarians would love. But at one point, they accused him of like tax evasion or something like that. He goes, I haven't evaded, I haven't evaded taxes. I've minimized my taxes. And he, Kerry Packer says, anyone out there who's not minimizing their tax burden needs to have their head checked. I mean, anybody who he says like... He says, "Why she's I'm not. I, have no, I see no reason why we should give you guys more money, considering how poorly you spend it now." And I think he's 100 percent right. And he sort of hits the nail on the head with that one. Yeah. Uh, someone brought the tobacco thing again. It reminded me when I was uh, actually military. I would they would uh, when I was deployed, uh, it would be borderline impossible to get a hold of uh, tobacco and, and like you, even a counter economy of formed there, even on a military base like in, in the Middle East. Yeah. There would be there would be people who would send over like in packages, they, you know, tons of them. And then they would sell them for absorbent prices, but cheaper than you would be able to get for, from there. So the, like, yeah. the counter economy thrives everywhere. Roger Ver, the owner of Bitcoin.com, a buddy of mine, um, he served time in a federal prison for 
bullshit really they were just looking for a reason to put him away and he was selling fireworks on ebay or something like that so they yeah. got him for like moving explosives through the mail it was a really trumped up bullshit charge because he had said some some shit publicly about the atf that was completely true but that's another story yeah i bring this up because he he one of the things he tells me is that he had read mises and rothbard novelist economics then he goes to prison and he sees people trading cigarettes and, and bartering for different stuff. And he says, I saw all these ideas put into practice. That's how he knew when Satoshi came out the white paper in 2008 that he knew something was there. And that's how he was able to jump in and invest so early. And I think that's true of a lot of early investors in cryptocurrency. We only got into it. You know, it's true in my case. I was only able to see the value of it because of people like Walter Block and Peter Schiff and Tom Woods and a lot of these Nizessian economists who taught me all this shit. Yeah. I highly suggest you guys go check out Robert or Roger Ver if you haven't heard of him. I've seen him on a few things and like hearing him talk about his story is great. And he's actually one of the many uh, arguments against political action because that happened when he was going through the political route because he thought he was going to make a difference. And he went hard as fuck like we would want him to if he were going to go that route. And it bit him in the ass which uh obviously right. that's not the only argument against political action because i know a lot of like the Mises caucus people would say you know like well we we do we're in a position where we kind of can do that whatever but you know there's other arguments but that's definitely an argument and he got railroaded for it so yeah and if, if you guys are familiar with ben mesrich he, he has that movie um uh the social network about the the founding of facebook he also came up with another book uh, more recently called um Bitcoin billionaires is what it's called. And um, it's the story of like the original Bitcoiners and how they came to be. And one of them is Roger Ver. So if you want to learn more about Roger, check out Ben. Ben Mesrich, of course, is a great storyteller. That's why his book was so successful. And it probably will end up being a movie one day. I'm, I'm almost guaranteed that Roger will wind up in some movie about the origins of Bitcoin one day. So check it out. Familiarize yourself with him. And also familiarize yourself with why he prefers Bitcoin Cash, which is another topic for discussion one day. All right. To some extent, then everyone is a uh, everybody is a counter economist, and this is predictable from libertarian theory. Nearly every aspect of human action is status legislation prohibiting, regulating, or controlling it. These laws are so num numerous that a libertarian party uh, uh, that prevented any new legislation and briskly repealed ten or twenty laws a session would not have significantly repealed the state, let alone this mechanism itself for millennia. Right? Which they don't, they don't repeal 10 or 20 laws a session. They can't even yeah. get a say in one session. So it's like... <laughs> yeah, which, I mean, that's why it does always come down to just arguing the, the messaging thing. Because if you're actually doing political... All the time. Yeah, if, if you're only arguing politically, it's like, well, that's pretty easy to slap down, like... Okay, <laughs> yeah, let's look at right. your track record. Like Konkin was actually being pretty generous in this one right here. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> so for sure. Uh, and that's not to say there aren't places that have examples over libertarian parties or even Republicans or Democrats who, who are or, or libertarians who run as Republicans or Democrats have positive effects. No one's saying there aren't positive effects in some places, but it's obviously always going to be outpaced by the uh about by counter economics essentially so it's exactly. it's more of it's more of an aspect of uh it's more of an aspect of like are there places you could better put your energy and i would i would also make the social science argument of 
you know, by doing that, those positives end up building this confidence in other people to engage in that way. Even if you could make the case that some given action or given person made a difference in a positive way, it's like, well, okay, how many people do they suck into this system to do the same thing when they could be doing other things? So, yeah. Yeah. True. Obviously, the state is unable to obtain enforcement of its edicts, yet the state continues. And if everyone is somewhat counter-economic, why hasn't the counter-economy overwhelmed the economy? Outside of North America, we, we can add the effect of imperialism. The Soviet Union has received support from the more developed countries in the 1930s in large quantities of instruments of violence during World War II. Even today, trade... Heavily subsidized by non-repayable loans, props up the Soviet and now Chinese regimes. This flow of capital, or anti-capital, being destructive of value from both blocs, along with military aid, maintains re regimes over the rest of the globe. But that does not explain the North American case. You're going to say something. So one of the um, <clears throat> one of the one of the stories I love is Carl Hess, who was one of the best, one of my favorite agorists ever ever live. And one of the great things that he used to do is Carl Hess would actively work with the mafia um, to try and prevent the flow of anti-capital into the hands of the Soviets. So he would actively work with the mafia to prevent sort of this cash flow going into the Soviet Union. Um, among other things, Carl Hess did all sorts of great stuff. He would airdrop guns into Havana, Cuba during rallies and stuff like that. Like just a real badass dude. And this, and one of the things he does is, is what Konkin's talking about here. I'm pretty sure Konkin got this vis-a-vis um, -vis his friendship with Hess, knowing what Hess's underground activities were. All right. What exists everywhere on earth that allows the state to continue is the sanction of the victim. Every victim of statism has internalized the state to some degree. The IRS's annual proclamation that the income tax depends on voluntary compliance is ironically true. Should the taxpayers completely cut off the blood supply, the vampire state would helplessly perish. It's unpaid police and army deserting almost immediately, defanging the monster. If everyone abandoned legal tender for gold and goods and contracts and other exchanges, it is doubtful that even taxation could sustain the modern state. And this is sort of, we're getting into sort of echoes of the old school left anarchists here. Like when you, when you read this, like, I don't know about you guys, but Benjamin Tucker is jumping out at me. Leo Tolstoy is jumping out at me when I read these words. This is like, this, this paragraph could have easily been in um, Tucker's journal or in one of Tolstoy's writings. It comes, jumps right out of those pages. Yeah, no, definitely. I, uh, I would highly suggest anyone listening. I've, I'm, I've been working on my anarchist uh, handbook uh, series. I'm not completely done, but I did the Benjamin Tucker episode with Ace, uh, Ace Arcus on Twitter. For those who are aware of him. Tucker's the man. Yes, it was a great, the Tucker's Tucker the chapter is great. He's very interesting. And it's funny because he actually, it was, I guess to kind of get to, to your point a little bit, what you were getting at in the Dave episode, like, yeah, yeah, their property, their, their, their economics were off, but if you look at it, he still kind of comes to the same uh, end result uh, action. Uh, and I don't think he would advocate for going to steal people from, you know, steal things from private no. individuals or whatever. He, I mean, yeah, he, his, he had the, uh, supply theory of value or whatever, but like, or not supply, but uh, you know what I mean. But well, Tucker was more friendly to um, private. Pro he wasn't a, it was a private. He wasn't like a capitalist or a Rothbardian by any measure. But he was certainly more because of his individualist um, outlook. He was much more keen on 
the rights of the individual and one of them being property rights. That also became, by the way, chapter 15 of anti-politics was, was Benjamin Tucker. Yeah. But yeah, if you guys want an introduction, go check out that episode to uh, Tucker. I, I, I was very impressed with it, especially because it's, it's a, uh, it, it has been interesting reading that book and reading into some all those lefty guys. anarchists. Yeah. Yeah. And like, we're so used to like, you know, we read what Rothbard. That's what people read today. That's it. It's the only really anarchist. Maybe a little bit of Hop. Maybe some Block. But that's that's really it. People really should should um, do their homework here. Go back. Take your time. Read Proud Dune. Read Tucker Tolstoy. Even read the bad guys. Right. Read Bakunin. Read mm-hmm. read the bomb throwers and find out why they were wrong. Yeah, a lot of them were like, yeah, they would be like, oh, property isn't real or or whatever, but they wouldn't act like, especially like mutualists and stuff. They wouldn't advocate actually taking property from people. They 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 were very nonviolent in that sense. So it's they would be the kind of the ideal anarchists to live by. Like, yeah, they don't believe you have a right to property, but they're not going to do anything about it. So who gives a fuck? You know? right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is where the state's control of education and the information media, either directly or through ruling class ownership, becomes crucial. In earlier days, the established priesthood uh, served the function to sanctify the king and the aristocracy, uh, to mystify the relations of oppression, and to induce guilt in evaders and resistors. The disestablishment of religion has put this burden on the new intellectual class, what the Russians call the intelligentsia. Some intellectuals holding truth as their highest value, as did earlier dissenting theologians and clerics, do work at clarifying rather than mystifying, but they are dismissed and or reviled and kept away from state and foundation controlled income. This is a very crucial point in anatomy of state, which I know all of us, uh, all of us people come from, coming from that tradition are very aware of. Uh, that is something he really touches on that the intellectual class or whatever you want to call it, they become an arm of the state because they are funded by the state. Uh, you know, to some extent, I know we brought up Rothbard was in them were funded by the state to some extent. Luckily it didn't corrupt them, but for many, the, it's one of those things where, like, it may not be this overt thing, but there's this, uh, there's a, there's an underlying subtext of, you know, you get further if you're saying the right thing. Oh things. yeah, yeah, absolutely. We and um, <clears throat> we call these court historians, right? These are the people yeah. that, um, you know, they they tell the this they tell the story of history on behalf of the state. That's why revisionist accounts of history are so important. That's why they're so key to. A really like a, a really robust understanding of libertarian philosophy. You really have to understand revisionist history to get it, because you have to understand where all those lies came into place. Yeah. Thus is the phenomenon of dis- dissidence and revisionism created, and thus is the attitude of anti-intellectualism generated among the populace who suspect or incompletely understand the function of the court intellectual. No well how anarchist intellectuals are attacked and repressed under every state and those arguing for an overthrow of the present ruling class even only to replace it with another are suppressed those who propose changes that eliminate some beneficiaries of the state and add others are often lauded by the benefiting elements of the higher circles and attacked by the potential losers a common characteristic of most hardened black marketeers is their guilt not me they wish They wish to make their bundle and return to straight society. Uh, and this is kind of something we were getting at earlier, which is this is kind of something built in that they, you know, people just can't even help it. Bootleggers and hookers all long someday for a reacceptance in society, even when they form a supportive sub society of outcasts. Yet there have been exceptions to this phenomenon of longing for acceptance. The religious dissenting communities of the 1700s. 
the political utopian communities of the 1800s, and most recently the counterculture of the hippies and the new left. New left referring to like the agorisms and uh, agorists, and I guess probably other certain sections you would consider that too. Um, well, check out um, Rothbard's book, uh, Never a Dull Moment, which is it's as, it's as it's as far left as Rothbard's going to go. It's certainly more of a leftist book than the one that we're, that we're reading right now. But that was a product, and Rothbard at the time was a product of the new left. Right? He was trying to form an alliance between the old right, the Frank Chodorovs of the world, with the new left, um, the Black Panthers, and so on and so forth. And, and that's um, where a lot of that comes into play. Yeah. What they had was a conviction that their sub-society was superior to the rest of society. The fearful reaction they generated in the rest of society was a fear that they were correct. All these examples of self-sustaining sub-societies failed for one overriding reason. Ignorance of economics. No social binding, no matter how beautiful, can overcome the basic glue of society. Division of labor. The anti-market commune defies the only enforceable law. The law of nature. Which I, this is a good little point. I know we talked on like in the the Dave episode and then and, and right. a little bit here the the lefty accusations or in, implications. It's like he could he's very he's very much Rothbardian 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 in his fucking economics. Rothbardian on Twitter might get a kick out of this. She watches that's someone I know, but um, yeah, no, that he's very much uh, you know an an cap in his economics in that sense. Um, uh, so I always say that uh, agorism is essentially a subsection of ANCAP, in my opinion. That's kind of it how is. I see it. It is. Like I say, we are more Rothbardian than, than the Rothbardians are, and that, that's yeah. the truth. Yeah. The basic organization organizational structure of society above the family is not the commune or tribe or extended tribe or state, but the agora. No, By I the like way, just to, like just to jump that. in real quick. Um, yeah. <clears throat> He's talking here about why voluntary communes fail. And there's, I did, um, shit, now I can't think of the name of it. I wrote an article for newlibertarian.io called, I think it was like In Defense of Left Libertarianism Part 2 or something like that, where I actually went over the history of a lot of these old school communes in the 1800s or what, what he's calling here uh, political utopian communities of the 1800s. A lot of these were anarchist communities, like in New Harmony. They had uh, an anarchist society. Um, they would build towns uh, all throughout the West. The Dukabors up in Canada, these, they had these voluntary communes. Most of them failed and aren't around today because, as Konkin says here, they, they try to defy uh, the one enforceable um, law of nature, the division of labor. And he's, he, he, of course, as always, he hits the nail on the head here. All these groups failed because they lacked poor economics. Some of them, I remember Bob Lefebvre, I think I spoke to you about, Bob Lefebvre has these series of lectures on the Mises Institute SoundCloud website, which everybody should check out, especially if you're interested in the history of anarchism, because he goes through the whole history and uh, he does a whole like lesson on the history of these um, political utopian communities. And I'm almost sure that's where Konkin is drawing a lot of this from, is his time studying under Lefebvre. Yeah. No matter how many wish communism to work and devote themselves to it, it will fail. They can hold back agorism indefinitely by great effort, but when they let go, the flow or invisible hand or tides of history or profit incentive or doing what comes naturally or spontaneity will carry society inexorably closer to the pure agora. 
why is there such resistance to eventual happiness? Psychologists have been dealing with that since they began their embryonic science. We can at least give two broad answers when it comes to socioeconomic questions. Internalization of anti-principles, those that seem to be principles but are actually contrary to natural law, and the opposition of vested interests. Now we can see clearly what is needed to create a libertarian society. On the one hand, we need the education of the libertarian activists and the consciousness-raising of counter-economists to libertarian understanding and mutual supportiveness. We are right, we are better, we are surviving in a moral, consistent way, and we are building a better society, a benefit to ourselves and others, our counter-economic and counter-groups might affirm. Note well that libertarian activists who are not themselves full-practicing counter-economists economists are unlikely to be convincing. Libertarian political candidates undercut everything they say of value by what they are doing. Some candidates have even held jobs in tax bureaus and defense departments. Bill Weld. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is like this sort of like performative contradiction he's pointing out is what I tried to impart to Dave um, during our discussion. But I don't again, I don't think I convinced him as such. To be fair, I do think you may have been overseeing. I get what you were getting at. It would have been a little bit easier if it was a Bill Weld type and he had like a defense job or something. But, but he, dude, if, if if Jesus Christ rose from the dead today, if he descended from the heavens and ran for office, I would be like, dude, you're being you're being a hypocrite because you're telling me that you love everybody and you know to be good and whatnot, but at the same time you're running for political office and you're you can't separate the office from its coercive nature. No matter yeah. how hard you try, I guess theoretically, hypothetically speaking, it's possible that somebody gets in there and they don't ever violate the non-aggression principle. But the likelihood of that happening, the chances are so slim to none that we can just, for the, the sake of discussion, say that it's not possible. Yeah. On the other hand, we must defend ourselves against a vested interest or at the very least lower their oppression as much as possible. If we eschew reformist activity as counterproductive, uh, how will we achieve that result? One way is to bring more and more people into the counter-economy and lower the plunder available to the state. But evasion isn't enough. How do we protect ourselves and even counterattack? Slowly but steadily, we will move to the free society, turning more counter-economists onto libertarianism and more libertarians onto counter-economics. Finally, integrating theory and practice. I do like how he makes this point of integrating the two. That is uh, one thing he's brought in many times in his books. The counter-economy will grow and spread to the next step we saw in our trip backward with an ever-larger agorist sub-society uh, sub embedded in the state of society. Some agorists may even condense into discernible, di discernible districts and ghettos or predominate on islands or in space colonies. At this point, the question of protection and defense will become important. So just, just to pause real quick, we're sort of... Um... We're sort of getting there, and I think later on in the book, uh, he'll get to um, yeah, he'll get to like the different phases of the Gorse Revolution. But um, this is sort of where we're on, where we're at now, where we can sort of we can sort of see these Agorist enclaves enclave, forming in like an embryonic fashion, right? So yeah. um, we have Agorist clustered in Miami right now around that sort of crypto community. There's a really vibrant crypto community in Miami clustered around the Bitcoin center and some of the folks down there, there there's another cluster of agorists in um, Acapulco, uh, Mexico, 
with Lily Forrester and Derek Bros and, and Berwick and all those agorists. Um, so yeah, we're, we're already, we're getting there. I've got friends in Australia who stick together. When I was in New York, there was all sorts of meetups that were sort of agorist, counter-economic related. So we're almost at the point now where we have these agorist enclaves. And over time, they'll start to interconnect with one another and they'll start to trade and do business. And, and uh, it'll become a much more dynamic situation until eventually these enclaves get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the state will actually be the ones in the minority and not us. Yeah, which I mean, uh, to keep bringing up the Canada example, that's a great example. Like you look at the protests and how the government initially posited it as this, as this fucking fringe movement. And now it's this huge group of people. And now the state is already, you know, showing its hand of how authoritarian it'll be. We'll, we'll cut off your bank account. We'll, it, we'll even try to fuck with what crypto we can. We'll kidnap your, your you know? pets. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Shit like that. So. I mean, and it's like we're right on the verge. I mean, this is a little bit getting a little ahead in the in the text here because we do go in the phases, but in the later phases when we start developing security markets or whatever. Right. And that would be like if we had Canada, like we're right on the verge, like with the Canada thing going around, if they got to the point where they had protection agencies, it would be a very different story right now what is going on, you know? So oh, like for said, sure. they're already starting arrests and stuff right now. So it, it's yeah. a matter of time. <clears throat> the state continues down this path. It's, it's just a matter of time until we, we see that. In fact, to, to an extent, we already do see it yeah. in places where they failed. Um, Dale Brown has the Detroit, Detroit, I'm sorry, Detroit Threat Man. Management, um, where he's providing an alternative to the failed Detroit Police Department. There is also an app uh that the don't comply crew was promoting in texas a while back called cell 411 where rather than calling the police you can send out an alert on some app and it would go out to um members of your network who are also part of the cell 411 network and they would rush to your aid if you needed help so yeah. it was sort of a community-based approach rather than a state or tax-funded based approach yeah, and even then, it, the simple – it's like building blocks build upon it and create that. Because even as simple as like I live in the country and pretty much – I have the, the number of like all my immediate neighbors and we all – multiple of us have been like out of town or whatever and be like, hey, keep an eye on my property or like – and we would all call each other before we would ever call the cops. And so right, from exactly. there, things build, you know. I uh, would never call the police if um... – just for the record, I, I wouldn't. I, I I can't imagine a case in which I would call the police. It would have to be really, really bad for me to actually call the police. I can't think of something that I would not rather handle myself than to call the police. I mean, I'd call them after the fact because I'm not going to go hide a body. So, but <laughs> uh. <laughs> I mean, depending on the scenario, <laughs> yeah, right. That's, I don't want to die. I mean, that, I'm afraid that, uh, they're going to come and shoot me. Yeah, uh, you know, hiding a body that that gets the point in an agoristic uh, formula that outweighs my uh, my cost I'm willing to take. Now, in a, in a true free society, I would just bury him in the backyard and not say anything to anyone. <laughs> well, we're in Florida. We're in Florida. Every way is a short ride from here. I'm only I only have to take you about an hour, and the, the alligators will handle the rest for me. Yeah. Um, let me just respond real quick. I see in the chat, um, Palu says well, we want to get a talk between me and Doug, uh, the XMR guy. I actually was in a space with Doug a week or two ago, and he didn't like what I had to say about Monero. So I'm not sure he'd be willing to do it. But I'm, of course, always willing to have a discussion with anybody at any time. Yeah. Yeah, fucking spaces are the wild, wild west of Twitter right now. Yeah. Uh, 
Using our agorist model, we can see how the protection industry must evolve. First, why do people engage in counter-economics with no protection? The payoff for the risk they take is greater than their expected loss. This statement is true, of course, for all economic activity, but for counter-economics, it requires special emphasis. The fundamental pro principle of counter-economics is to trade risk for profit. The higher the expected profit, the, the greater risk taken. Note that if risk is lowered, a lot more would be attempted and accomplished. Surely an indicator that a free society is wealthier than an unfree one. That touches on a lot of stuff we were getting at earlier when it comes to the, the you know the risk reward type thing. Um, Not you know, too. Go ahead. Go ahead. But I was going to say, I mean, if you're in a position where you're you're considering pursuing counter-economics and you're doing some action that you know the possible consequence is likely to occur and is beyond your scope of what you can manage and not ruin yourself, uh, I'd say you're kind of retarded to pursue it personally. Yeah, you know, like, of course. So, so yeah, you don't even no no one wants to wind up in jail. You can't you yeah. can't fight against the state from a prison cell. Or I guess you can in a in, in a certain way. That's that's another story. Yeah. Um one thing uh I want to point out here um Conkin says here that if <clears throat> he says note that if risk is lowered, a lot more people, a lot more would be attempted and accomplished. One of the things that myself and the folks from Agoras Nexus have been working on, and we plan on releasing uh, this year. So just special, just a little inside info for you guys watching is we plan on releasing an Agorist DAO, an Agora DAO. We might call it the Counter DAO or Agora DAO. We're not really sure yet. It'll be tokenized, and uh, the idea will be to provide bail relief to counter-economists so that we're actually able to lower the barriers to entry, lower the risks associated with gray and black market activity, just like Conk is talking about here, so that you, if you know that if you get busted for some uh, voluntary entrepreneurial activity, the Agora DAO will come to your aid, you're much more likely to engage in that activity. And that's sort of the point with what we're trying to do there. We're getting at exactly what Konkin hit here, but that's still in the works. We're still building it, and it's we're we're at least a year away from launch. So just a heads up. By the way, for people in the chat, if you I've seen a few questions. If you guys do have questions, you do want to ask. Uh, I mean, we are tight on time. I'm trying to knock this out because uh, we're almost at the end. But if you do really have a question to ask, super chat it, and I will make the time because you know I'm a true capitalist. Um, Risk may be lowered by increasing care, taking precautions, tightening security, lock stashes, safe houses, and by trusting fewer persons of higher trustworthiness. The last indicates a high preference for dealing with fellow agorists and a strong economic incentive that binds an agorist sub-society and provides an incentive to recruit or support recruitment into that sub-society. Counter-economic entrepreneurs have an incentive to provide better security devices, places of concealment, instructions to aid evasion, and to screen potential customers and suppliers for other counter-economic entrepreneurs. And thus is the counter-economic protection industry born. As it grows, it may begin insuring against busts, lowering counter-economic risk further, and accelerating counter-economic growth. Just like you. You're in this book right now. So, All right. Uh, then it may provide lookouts and guarded areas of safekeeping with alarm systems and high-tech concealment mechanisms. Guards may be provided against real criminals other than the state 
Already many residential business and even minority districts employ private patrols, <clears throat> having given up on the state's alleged protection of yeah. property, which Dale you brought Brown. up before. Yeah. So uh, with Detroit theft management. Yeah. Um, and you know what? Like you've brought it before. He's not even he's not even an anarchist, ANCAP, whatever. Like he's just a dude who's just like, you know, right. incentives drive him a certain way. And he's driven That's to That's what it. you were so, talking about earlier. It's exactly what you were saying earlier. Yeah. Along the way, the risk of contract violation between counter-economic traders will be lowered by arbitration. Then the protection agencies will start providing contract enforcement between agris, although the greatest enforcer in the early stages will be a state to which one can betray the other. Yet that act would quickly result in one's expulsion from the sub-society, so an internal enforcement mechanism will be valued. In the final stages, counter-economists economist transactions with status will be enforceable by the protection agencies and the agorists thus protected against the criminality of the state. At this point, we have reached the final step before the achievement of a libertarian society. Society is divided between large and violet areas and rapidly shrinking status sectors. We stand on the brink of revolution, which I do have to say, I do love how he integrates revolution into his concept of agorism because this is a common thing that infiltrates the constitutionalists and caps whatever the idea of revolution and colloquially speaking i actually think revolution is the big dumb like you know violent revolution in that sense I, technically even agorist revolution will be violent at some point but it's more of a violence in a in achieving uh restitution not in just uh you know wanton violence essentially even um, even then, um, the, the 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 possibilities for violence will be tempered and minimized. Yes, yeah, because the idea is not just to do violence and to you know take down the oppressors or whatever, and and you know not generally speaking, most revolutions end up becoming co-opted. Um, you know, and that's a, one of the big issues. A lot of <clears throat> a lot of libertarians and caps want to like behead these politicians. They want like Pelosi like swing from a telephone pole. I, mean, I, I feel my money back. <laughs> I, just want, I just want my money back. Like yeah. I, don't, I don't give a shit what this bitch does. I just want her to give me my goddamn money back, and she can go about her life, and I'll go about my life. I mean, don't be wrong. I wouldn't be upset if those happened, but at the same time, my prime. These are people who mean basically <clears throat> nothing to me. So the money back would be the ideal. Like whether they get some sort of cosmic justice, it's really not something I'm going to overly concern myself with. The problem you know? with killing these politicians is that you deny their victims the opportunity for restitution. Mm. <laughs> right? If you kill Pelosi, then she can't pay her victims back, and you become responsible for paying them back. Yeah. Well, all right. Uh, we're at the end of the chapter. Uh, the next one will be Revolution, Our Strategy. Uh, let me see. This, the next one's a good one, by the way. The next one yeah. is getting into all the four. This, th the last one was a good one, but this, this um, four phases is really key. Yeah, this one may be one that gets – actually, does, I don't think he goes – wait, does he go in the phases in that one, or is it the next one? Action, our tactics. No, he does. This might be another one that might be two, epi two episodes or not. We'll see. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to try to do my best to try to keep uh, – each chapter to an episode or, or so to keep it clean so we're not starting in the middle of chapters but uh, either way yeah that'll be that'll be good it's uh i hope we drove more people to this from the dave episode because uh, maybe more people will be interested in the concepts we're getting at um you know so this should be good i'm enjoying this yeah. uh yeah uh if you want to go and drop your plugs we'll, we'll get out of here um yes yeah, sal mayweather at uh, at sally mayweather or just salvi agorist 3d printer go for 3d printers and supplies although honestly right now i've got 
major supply chain issues. I'm getting screwed bad by fucking Biden. Um, I should have more inventory another month, I'm hoping. Um, also, agorathreads.com for anarchist apparel. And the book, of course, is anti-politics. You can check it out on Amazon. Or you can DM me on Twitter if you want to pay with crypto. Yeah. Uh, this, you know, this is a good uh, chat. It wasn't a super chat, but I'll bring it up just because it's a good point. I consider agorism more of a revolution in the mind. People just need to realize that they're already living and working in counter economics. And yeah, that's kind yes, of the point we're getting at. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yep. And then uh, with that, uh, this is the No Way Jose show. You can find me on YouTube. You can find me on all the major audio podcatchers, Odyssey as well. Uh, my Twitter is at 2020 No Way Jose. If you want to follow me there, get me back to my spot where I was before I got nuked. Uh, you know, like I said earlier, give me money, patreon.com, just no way Jose 2020. Like, share, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. I appreciate everyone who joined us and I appreciate you, Sal, for being here. Uh, we'll do, we'll schedule another one, uh, and we'll get back to you. I don't think we'll do another next week. I'm actually already booked for next week, but probably the following week. Uh, okay. We'll talk about this after, uh, uh, after we, you know, yeah. end here. But with that, we are out. I appreciate everyone who came. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online master's of social work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu.